Welcome to episode 9 of We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacquis, and this is an excerpt of a conversation recorded with Badly Licked Bear in their apartment in the historic South Central neighborhood of Los Angeles. So I originally thought to invite you to participate in this project because a lot of these topics are topics you and I have discussed both online and in person over the years. So I was like, oh, they'll have a lot to say about these things. But let's start with your name. Tell me about the origins of Badly Lick Bear. Okay, so I feel like kind of working like all the way back to Kiev from here. Okay. Because I usually (laughs) work forward. From like somewhere near Moscow. We can start earlier. No, no, it's funny. It's I I haven't thought about it this direction before. So yeah, I mean, I I changed my name um, for all creative and art making purposes approximately like eighteen months ago after several years of like very serious internal consideration, and then uh, about six months ago, I formally just started like exclusively using that name for all purposes, aside from banking, my taxes, and my job. You know, Mm. so. So I do use my government name in those contexts, mm-hmm. and I increasingly view like any time when I'm kind of using that name as somehow performative. When I was in grad school, I was studying with somebody named Barry Sanders, whose Hebrew name, because I'm Jewish, is Bartholomew, which also means like blessed or bear or Barry. There's like a lot of overlaps yeah, between yeah. these words. They have certain kinds of like you know linguistic overlaps. I should say that he's like a trickster figure. But he talked a lot about what's called a badly licked bear. Because he's also written a book on bears called The Sacred Paw. And, like, the symbolism of bears. Um, So the two things that I really took from this... Actually, the first thing was before the name. So I stopped cutting my hair in 2013, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And I think the people who know that I'm, like, militantly indigenous, which is my other background, um, think that it's, like, an indigenous thing. And maybe it kind of... I feel an obligation in that direction, but I stopped cutting my hair because, like, Merlin... Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, historically, you know, Merlin, like, kind of gets heartbroken at some point and turns into a bear. He, like, becomes feral and actually becomes a bear. He becomes a hairy man. And so, like, for me, like, stopping cutting my hair was to some degree about um, acknowledging at all times that I'm actually, like, an animal. Like, I think that most people are, like, deluded that they're a human being you know there are animals that think they're a person mm-hmm. but I like to think that I'm an animal that was like thinks it's a person that's trying to be an animal or something like that if that makes sense so I was really inspired you're like holy shit no <laughs> I'm not because I'm actually thinking about conversations I had with my three and a half year old recently where he was you know trying to distinguish between our humans animals and my first thought was well yes yeah. but then I also was like hearing Trump in the background talking about <laughs> oh God about immigrants as animals and I was like wait I can't no I can't tell my son that like what do I yeah well, so <laughs> so back to Barry Sanders so so Barry uses the term badly like bear he uses it like several times I think he's been giving like variations on the same lectures for almost like fifty years and that's like it's a really beautiful thing uh-huh. uh, so badly like bear is a French term and uh, yeah I'm part French whatever I mean. I'm part of a lot of things. We're going to get to that. <laughs> and it refers, it's from the medieval era, and it refers specifically to the idea 
that in medieval science or literature or lore, bears were born into the world as an undifferentiated mass, essentially of fur or clay, mm -hmm. and that they are licked into shape by their mothers. Mm -hmm. So a child who is misbehaving or an adult who is like has poor ethics or like does not conform to something or mm -hmm. um, is, is oftentimes called a badly licked bear. It doesn't appear that much in literature. And there's only like a couple like medieval illustrations of like, like a mama bear licking a little ball. Like the bear is like literally like a ball of fur in like this bad way. And then um, I left grad school and I was having a lot of thoughts and feelings and I was in a weird place in my life. And I started like thinking about being a bear a lot. Uh -huh. um, and and not cutting my hair and then it's kind of this loop and at a certain point I was like well I have a lot of issues with my adoptive family mm -hmm. and that name has always the name that my government name um, has always been a pseudonym in a certain kind of way and actually people have thought it was a pseudonym I can accept the name that I was legally born under but like I don't want to die under that name I was born in 1978 and my birth parents were a woman who is named either Peggy or Margaret Ann Morris uh -huh. and someone named Ronald Lopez. And I have very few details about the birth father um, other than he was like, you know, Latin and indigenous and that my birth mother was French, Scottish and English. Mm. When did you find out you were adopted and how I've always you told? Known. This is the weird thing. This is the really weird thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born in 1978 when it was still legal to have the state of California seal birth records, create a fake birth certificate, which I have a copy of, uh -huh. and then um, you could pass off the child as your own, right? My adoptive parents had been, had been denied an adoption of like what would have been considered like a healthy white baby because they were Jewish, the white identifying Jews. Mm -hmm. um, for over 10 years prior to my... They've been trying? And they have been trying to adopt it and been rejected. Do you know why? I don't know, but I, I mean, I was raised by them, so I have some <laughs> theories as to why you wouldn't place a child with these people. Wow. Yeah, so for 10 years, they were denied an adoption. 1977, you know, this woman gets pregnant. Um, her family's Southern Baptist. Abortion is legal, but not for Southern Baptists. Right. You know, not for 15-year-old Southern Baptists. I mean, even if it's... I mean, I don't know how... I, I've often thought about this. Like, how many years between Roe v. Wade and like could you even get to an abortion clinic like when right. the, like just when did, because it's legal doesn't mean you, you have access or yeah. your parents would let you or the father vanishes he exists on paper as a name I can only verify this because I found uh, a small sheath of papers in a box related like of you know cards from my first birthday party and all those little things like a, like a tiny box that mm -hmm. contained some notes from the lawyers and from people who handle my adoption. Immediately on the day that I'm born, I am essentially handed off to this Jewish couple. Um, I now believe, because of things I know about how adoptions were handled at that time and the fact that they did use this bizarre legal mechanism um, that seemed unnecessary because I've always known I was adopted. No one has ever tried to conceal this from me. I've always been aware of my multiracial background, mm -hmm. um, like very specifically, although my mother used to say that I was Spanish which is a nice way of, like, not saying you're Mexican, you know? Like, you know, like, I realized I was Latin when someone called me a beaner. 
Mm. You know, so that, you know like, that was like the first time I like, I'm like, I am not passing. I was like nine. Someone's yeah. like, and I'm like the whole time, like everyone's been like, that's that Mexican kid. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, or like, don't let them come over They're whatever. Like people have been talking about me and it's never occurred to me because I, you know, I went to Hebrew school and stuff. So right. I, I thought of myself as Jewish and there's lots of Jews who are kind of dark skinned and right, like, right. you know, like we kind of have a United Colors of Benetton look when you get a bunch of us together, especially right, right. in like a middle class community. You know, there's like, I, knew, I grew up and I knew like black Jews. I knew people who, so it was like, anybody could be Jewish. You know, you just fit in with the Jews, right? <laughs> I had the same pediatrician as a child as my birth mother. Um, and I believe it was brokered through his office and I believe mm. I was, I believe I was, I was sold. Mm. I believe that my parent, that money changed hands. Um, I have since learned in the past couple of years that it used to be extremely common to buy and sell babies up until the, up until the sixties and seventies and less and less common to the eighties. It became illegal either in 1980 or the early eighties in California to do what my parents did, but my birth records were still sealed from me by the state of California. I have no legal right to see my own birth certificate. Mm. Um, I have no legal right to know who my parents' names are. Um, I also found notes indicating that my birth mother wanted contact with me and that that was going to be arranged. And as far as I know, that never occurred. Mm-hmm. I would completely respect her if it was like too traumatic and she like went back on it. But I... Right. I uh, you think it's more like your adoptive parents didn't want it? My adoptive mother is like the kind of uh, mother who doesn't like women competing with, for the their attention, like, you know, like yeah. their child's attention. Anyway, so to work backwards, so that's like the bookends of my yeah, naming. Yeah. I was so I was named by my adoptive parents. My birth name is Marshall Astor. My Hebrew name is Moisha. I'm named for Morris Malkin, who's the family patriarch. Uh-huh. And and Morris, my grandfather died before I was born. My grandmother, um, whose name was Bertha Malkin, um, um, they were both from a shtetl near Kiev, and I loved her. I mean, I thought she was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought she was the most amazing person in the world. She was like this, she was like shorter than me when I was 10. Um, and she was like, um, like, like just like a, like a tiny, like very unpleasant looking Ukrainian woman. You're not like unpleasant, like she just looks just kind of stern, but she didn't have a stern personality at all uh-huh. Uh-huh. with like, like a colossal bosom, you know, like. Like, like she was like all like all stacked up like a belly and a bosom and a and a, hair and a, and a, a solid head and a bun like you could draw her in like circles uh-huh. does it make sense yes, all the way yes. down um, and I just kind of remember her as being like very not authoritative but like astoundingly stubborn huh. like 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 she could out stubborn like any Jew anywhere and when did they come <laughs> to us they came um, she was born in 1893 I believe and uh, if I recall correctly. And they came to the United States around 1917. Well, they first came to the United States around 1917 or so. They they were fleeing uh, was the Russian Revolution at the time. And so this is the family story, which I, uh, as a creative person, I have one self-criticism, is that I'm always concerned that I'm not actually a curious person. Like, this is a big concern of mine that I... Because every time I discover that I have missed an opportunity to engage my own curiosity, I'm like, what is holding you back? Mm. I didn't ask my family very many questions about the his- like family history when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And be- when I became an adult, I realized people actually knew about their families. It never occurred to me. I don't really feel like I have a family. I don't, really, I, I, I don't understand how a family dynamic functions for other people at all. Mm. I mean, I love my grandmother, but I don't really feel connected. I mean, I don't feel like I'm related to any other human being. Like, I live in the world like an island. It's a mm. bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, I don't resemble physically any human being whom I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that I could meet my birth parents and physically resemble them is, is to me like insane. Like you resemble your son, like you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah like your son resembles it's you. It's kind of funny because I, it's it's surprising when I. I'm with I'm with him in public and strangers will be like, oh, that's definitely your kid. <laughs> Whereas when I, I don't think, if you look close to me and my mom, we look facially features I think are similar, but my mom looks way more Jewish than I mm-hmm. do. I mean, my mom had her hair before it went gray was like maybe darker than yours and super ringlet curls. Mm-hmm. and That's like very Jewish. Everybody had the big nose. And, and it wasn't until recently, like a few, a couple years ago, I started getting random emails and FaceTime calls from a Chris Jackless. And my last name, the way it's spelled, is not very common. Mm-hmm. So finally, I emailed, and I mess, emailed him back and said, are you related to Marston Jackless from Buffalo, New York? And he was like, yes. And it turns out our grandfathers are brothers. And my father is Marston, and, and his father was Marston. Mm-hmm. But he's so Chris sent me this family reunion photo of all the Jackwesses from the Adirondacks, and everybody's blonde. And my sister and I were like, that's definitely where it comes from. Like, we look way more like that side of the family than that's my mom's wild. side. But I've never known that. Like, them. skipped a bunch of... My parents divorced before we started elementary schools, and mm-hmm. then he oh. he left, and I didn't see him for another ten years, and then another six years mm-hmm. after that. So, like, I just didn't know his family. Like, I knew my grandparents, mm-hmm. my grandmother really, because my grandfather died when I was really little, and I knew a great aunt on that mm-hmm. side, and that was it. Mm-hmm. I understand that sense of like not feeling like you look like mm-hmm. your family, even though it's not same circumstances no and I, sh- I should mention I have temporal epilepsy and um, one of the things that tends to affect people with temporal epilepsy, epilepsy is that um, you have what's called a persistent sense of deja vu sometimes mm. you feel like the present you feel like present like it's a pa- the past right, right. Um, and there are, there are things that affect epileptics that are um, independent of seizure behavior and particularly people have temporal epilepsy. And so one of the... I, there's a term for this, but I actually have trouble recognizing myself in the mirror. Mm. Like, I don't know what I look like. Mm-hmm. And so as somebody who has, like, gender dysphoria, like, the fact that I don't know what I look like is very problematic. It, has, it means also that, like, I think I can come off, actually, to some people as if I'm, like, on the spectrum or something because I'm somewhat aware of my... unaware of my physical presence in some way. Mm. Like, I don't really know what I look or sound like sometimes. Like, it, my awareness that kind of comes and goes and... When I see pictures of myself, it's rather disturbing to me. Um, and that has something to do with gender story, but it also has something to do with the fact that, like, that I don't have a, a sense of a physical center, that I look like a certain kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you said your, gra- your grandmother from Kiev came in mm-hmm. 1817? So they came in 19, around 1917, 1917, 1918. Sorry, sorry. And um, so she came with her husband, their infant child, Sonia, or she was like three or four, Sonia, mm-hmm. and she spoke fluent Russian. Um, and she, she was the one who spoke Russian with grandma, like Russian, the grandma would like, we, I spent every Saturday at my grandparents' house when I was a child, like every week, that's what we did. Like, it was interesting, my grandmother spoke Russian and preferred to speak Russian until mm-hmm. she died. Hmm. Um, Did you learn any of it? No, not a word. Yeah. So the the Malkin family and also another family that were related to came over. I did later learn this. There's another family that I grew up who are sort of related to us mm-hmm. from the shtetl. And they also live in Los Angeles somewhere, the Rodmans. Hmm. And so the Rod, I don't know much about them, but I remember Auntie Rodman 
who was not my aunt, but I believe that she was my grandmother's like co- like second cousin or something. I mean, it's it's a shtetl. Everybody is related in some right, way, right. but you could like be too related to somebody to marry them or something like that, right? So um, they came over at the same time, and they went to New York, the Rodmans. When the Malkins were being processed through Ellis Island, um, uh, they were told no more Jews. America has no room for any more Jews, mm-hmm. um, and because you're Jewish, go back to Russia or go back to Ukraine. So I didn't know when I was a child that that my family was Ukrainian. Um, I thought they were Russian because they always identified as Russian and spoke Russian. Um, And it was only when I somehow wormed out that they were from like, you know, the outskirts of Kiev that I realized you're Ukrainian. Like, I mean, I don't know how this distinction works. But it's also hard because, I mean, that's like a lot of the people from that generation on my, my mom's side of the family everybody argues about what country they were from yeah. because the borders just kept changing. So at one point it was Ukraine, at one point it was yeah. Russia. So like I'm from what's now yeah. legally in the Ukraine. Yeah. But I mean like I don't like for Jews, I mean I think it, I don't think the nationhood matter like if you're from that region, right. the nationhood didn't matter so much as like where you were from locally. So it's like my father's side, which we'll talk about, my adopted father's side. They are from Moscow or near Moscow, yeah. and I think that they identified essentially as urban Jews yeah. in some kind of way. And they went like right to Brooklyn and fit right in or something. Right. So they're from Kiev, and what happened to them in the shtetl, this is the story, this is the like apocryphal or, or like version I, I got from, like, I think I got this from, I think I got this from one of my cousins, actually. Hmm. Um, my My understanding is that what I believe are what were described as Cossacks, but were probably historically fake Cossacks, as like state-employed pseudo Cossacks, because mm-hmm. um, like the Cossacks is an ethnic group that were like mercenaries, kind of stopped existing by the 20th century, and then were later filled by a group of people who like assumed the sociological role of Cossacks mm-hmm. as tools, essentially, of the emerging Soviet state or uh, tools of the Tsar, depending on who was basically paying. They're essentially mercenaries, um, and so a lot of Jews in the Ukraine were essentially killed by the state, by state-paid mercenaries, whose job it was to essentially ethnically cleanse farming villages. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrative that I got, um, and I like stories, so I'm going to go with this one, was that they, that most of the family or most of the village, like the, the, there's this big farmhouse, like the kind of, like that kind of big farmhouse you imagine there's like a lot of people yeah, could live in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then everybody was herded into the house and the house was set on fire and everyone died. And then some people just, they just somehow went west. I mean, it's unimaginable. Like, 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 how would you, you have nothing. And then you, like, get to America? Like, I, there's, I, so from, like, people on fire, I have no knowledge of how they got on the boat. Yeah. Like, what, how did they pay for that? What, how many years did that take? So they arrived, I mean, it happened, like, almost, they immediately, must have gotten a train. They must have, like, just, like, rode a horse to Kiev or something and, like, got on a train to London or or, or Copenhagen or somewhere and yeah. got on a, and like I don't know it's a mystery and um, and of course I don't my you know like my uh, adoptive mother is the eldest person in the family I have, I have no interest in talking with her about any of this stuff mm. um, and um, to my loss I'm sure I wouldn't trust her as a she's a very unreliable narrator on a variety mm. of things so I mean it would just get worse so people died and they ended up um, at Ellis Island, presumably with the Rodmans, who may be our relatives, um, who eventually made their way to L.A. Because, like, mm-hmm. you know, the Jewish diaspora leads to Miami or Los Angeles. Or right. I like to think of more... I'm gonna, I think that, like, my life 
is dominated or guided by inspirational trickster figures. Mm. And I like to think that Morris Malkin is this sort of clever individual. And so he's like, well, I'm not going back to the grave. You know, fuck that. Yeah. I'm a crafty guy. He was kind of a lay rabbi, apparently. He was yeah. like, uh, or at least once they got to Canada, he became one. He was like the, he was the Jewiest Jew around. You know, like the guy who would be like, hmm, like, you know, like with his beard and like, <laughs> you know, like your problem, I see. You know, like, he, like, I got the feeling that that was his role. And... I'm not sure if this is real, but Where there is a Canada painting of uh, Nova Scotia, okay. which is like Catholic. Yeah, that's where actually real, a lot of Jeremy's family is from. Real Catholic. And, um, and there's a painting that was in my grandmother's house, and I thought that it was a painting of him, but I think it was just a painting of a rabbi. <laughs> but I mean, I'd seen him, and I always I, I have trouble not viewing Morris Malkin, for whom I'm named after. Uh-huh. Um, as a rabbi. And I always felt that like I have some obligation. Like I feel like I have some obligation to like be crafty in the way that Morris Malkin was crafty. Uh-huh. But, um, but some he made of this his own is, tools. Is lore, and some of this is your own mythologizing. Yes, who he might have been. Yeah, because you have to like find. You know, I had to. I own his tools, his toolboxes. He made his own toolboxes. Yeah. I mean, I own this stuff to this day. I own a cold chisel that he clearly made from like a railroad spike that he like hammered out, you That's know, cool. in his own anvil. Um, and a couple other tools that were all made from railroad. It's a tiny little hammer that was basically made from two railroad spikes that worked together. Um, you know, I just feel an obligation towards this person. And um, I'm named after this person. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, and Mo- and he's named after Moses, which is an interesting thing. I mean, Moses can lead people to Israel but never enter. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's my interesting takeaway of, of Moses is that Moses can lead people to a thing, but he can never benefit from it himself. Is a very interesting, like, tragic figure mm-hmm. um, who, like, is aware that his role is limited. And I, I rather enjoy that perspective of, like, being aware that, like, um, you can't be everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, they set up shop in Canada and they have a general store. And he becomes the kosher busher because he's, like, the guy who knows how to do that. So, I mean, intensively, all, all kosher bushers are to some degree rabbinical figures it requires a little bit of religious training yeah um, so presumably he knew how to do that from Kiev because I can't imagine who would do that in Nova Scotia um, they live there long enough they open a general store they have the first truck in town um, they live there long enough to um, experience you know um, anti-Semitism mm. they're like Catholic children throw rocks at them in the street and tell them they killed Christ um, and Around the time that my adoptive mother is 16, this would be like the 30s. Mm-hmm. No, she, no, no. So she was, no, 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 that wouldn't be the 30s. She was born in 1936. Oh, so so it would be the 50s. 50s. So by the time she's 16 or something, she's in high school at this point, or like a pro, or just about to graduate high school, they go to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And they became Canadian citizens. So they came to America and they said, this is like, this, we're Canadians now. Like, for, they, they didn't tell America. Like, America was, like, after the war. If you're so Jewish, their idea they, was, like, we're going to... You won't let us in if we're Jew. Russian Jews. <laughs> now we're Canadian. Oh, sure. Welcome. Yeah, we're just, yeah. From, we're just from Nova Scotia. And you Scotia. don't have to say your religion. Mm-hmm. I have my great-grandfather's naturalization papers, and I don't remember if his religion was on. I think that they must have... It probably... The government knew they were Jews. Yeah. I mean, they just... 
these people look Jewish. What's the last name again? Last like, oh, okay, so the last name is Malkin. Malkin. Mm. So these are the Malkins. But it's yeah. Bertha and Morris Malkin. Morris, and the children yeah. Sonia, Hannah, and Molly. Yeah, the Jews. But Molly <laughs> and, could and be Lou. Irish. Lewis, yeah. Yeah, Molly could. Yeah. Um, so there were four of them. I, there was a, a brother who there's three sisters and a, and a brother. The brother died when I was yeah. a child. Um, Hannah's pretty Jewish. Hannah's, yeah. I mean, I, I know like seven Hannahs. Yeah, I probably went to Hebrew school with seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so, uh, so I should make a really great like seven Hannahs for seven brothers or something like that. So. <laughs> but um, the uh, and so they came to America. It's just they, they they lived through the war in Nova Scotia, which is interesting because you know again they're all too young to be in the war or too old to be in the war. Yeah, and um, then they went to New York, and they went to Brooklyn, and my adoptive mother uh, went to nursing college, Jewish nursing college. Her sisters, uh, I think Sonia became a housewife, um, got married in New York to, to the Kalamick family. Her sister, uh, Honey, I think they also got married in Philip in Pittsburgh. Some people went we to Pittsburgh. We have a ton of family in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah, like the Pittsburgh is like... The history of Pittsburgh That's is like where super all the amazing. Orthodox Jews in my family are. Mm-hmm. Like my grandfather's family mm-hmm. came in through Ellis Island and ended up in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And there's a ton of... Because he had, I think... I always forget if he had four or five siblings. And these are also, right? Saul, yeah. Benjamin, Emmanuel, yeah. Esther, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Bessie. I don't know what Bessie was, was short for. But anyways, they... They all had a ton of kids, and most of them stayed in yeah. Pittsburgh. Like, there's still several generations yes. there. My uncle Lou moved to Pittsburgh permanently, huh. and he had a photo studio. He's a, a photographer, like a you know, yeah. portrait yeah. photographer, wedding yeah. photographer, um, and married this horrible woman named June, this really unpleasant woman. And no one loved, I mean, June was like the most unpleasant person in the whole family of, of somewhat unpleasant people. And uh, had a son named Rick. Rick and my cousin Rick is like he's a session drummer. He was like mm. uh, Richard Marx or Mr. Marx's like tour drummer for a long time, and oh, the wow. house drummer at the Grand Ole Opry and stuff. And like very like Midwest. I mean, he's like a Jewish guy. Like ended up like you know in the mid- oh. like you know he's in Nashville. He lives in Nashville. Yeah. Like, he's like he's a musician who lives in Nashville and like does session work. It's like that's very Jewish, I guess. Everything you know, you know. Um, and then Lou and June moved to Florida. You know, and they would bring me shark's teeth. And, like, Florida seemed magical to me as a kid. Like, I want to go to the beach. Because he would talk about the beach all the time. You know? But you were... But it's another beach. I've never been to that beach. California. Beaches are awesome. I know the beaches are cool. There was shark's teeth. He always brought me shark's teeth. It's just a a different beach. From the beach. beach. There was shark's teeth on the beach. Like, fossilized shark's teeth. Everywhere. (laughs) The world was just littered with, like, you know, the prehistoric remains of of another time, of a million years ago. I don't know. I mean, I was always romanticizing Lou. Lou was, I mean, he he was an artist. He was interesting. He was... Uh, very sick. He had like tubes going in and out of him. I remember meeting him at the wow. Disneyland restaurant the last time I saw him alive. And there yeah. was a tube that went in him here and it went in, like it came, there was tubes that went in and out. Wow. And he looked bad. He looked, you know, um, so uh, I think that was Lou. I might, I might be confusing with a different uncle. Maybe to, That's not, what's also super fascinating. I Because I was mixing up two of my great grandmothers mm-hmm. when I kept saying, when I started this project and I was like inspired by my I forget what I I think I said um, Austrian and then in parentheses or Russian or Latvian great grandmother with the fake passport I was picturing my grandmother on my my great grandmother on my 
maternal grandmother's side, Grandma Edith's mom. Mm-hmm. And it turns out then somebody on my grandfather's mm-hmm. side was like, oh, yeah, no, she's from... <laughs> Lithuania, and yes, the fake passport is under this person's name. I feel like this is like my confusion with the Rodman. And I was like, like, oh, wait, no, I meant the other one, but okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I had trouble figuring out if Auntie Rodman was my grandmother's sister at some point. Well, because for me, I also, we, my sister and I called both great-grandmothers on my mom's side Bubby. Bubby Ida and Bubby Pauline. My grandfather, so Bubby Ida was his mom, he used to get furious and he'd be like, Pauline is not Bubby. My, only my mother is Bubby. And it was sort of like, I never understood why. I thought until... that was my grandmother's name until I didn't <laughs> know that her name was Bubby. I thought her name was Bubby and then my grandfather's name was Zadie. We I thought that used, was their names. I don't think we use Zadie. Although the, some of the relatives in Pittsburgh call their grandparents Zadie but for some reason my if someone's listening they're not Jewish they have no idea well, what we're now talking I about get it well now I get it where I, I the more I'm starting to understand both sides of my mom's family I think the orthodox side mm-hmm. spoke Yiddish the other side didn't mm-hmm. really so that that even though they were Jewish they didn't like I have the letters from my great-grandfather and he was complaining that his soon-to-be wife's parents were writing to him in in Jewish and he couldn't read it mm-hmm. and then he says and the one man because this is during World War One, and they're in France he's like the one man that was going to read it to me just got killed so I have to find somebody else <laughs> who can read it oh god I grew up listening my, my adoptive parents both spoke in Yiddish around me which they never taught me when they didn't want me to know what they were talking about. That's exactly what and my grandparents... And I learned to understand Yiddish. My As grandparents it, did the exact same thing, so I... Could, I was completely fluent in deciphering Yiddish. <laughs> I only understood... Like, my gra- the only thing my grandmother formally taught me, I have very vivid memories of sitting on her lap, like, sort of straddling her, and her pointing to every part of my face and telling me, Kepala... Agala, Tinsela, I don't remember the rest, but those I are think, the ones that I, I think remember. I also went, got about this far with and it. Then, but then the rest I understood more like <laughs> they're arguing and they don't want us to know what yeah. they're arguing about. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talked about your your family in Nova Scotia having experience with anti-Semitism. Do you feel like you've ever experienced that? Or oh. discrimination or harassment because of being Jewish? Or even just because of what you look like? Oh yeah, I mean that's my like, that's my whole life. I went to work, um, and I'll still continue to do this. I mean, I go to work at um, the college we both work at in men's drag every day. Do you dress the same way at your new job? No, not at all. No. So you, what made you feel like that was a safer place? I'm in the fine art world. Yeah. I work with people who work in my actual career as an artist. They they see yeah. me. Yeah. They so see me at events where like I'm in like I'm wearing like indistinguishable like hypersexualized cross-gendered clothing. I mean, like they see me in short shorts, they see me in lingerie, they see me in states of near nudity. They may have seen me in performances where I am engaged in like a sexual act. They may have I don't care. I mean, I yeah. I can maintain face-to-face conversations with those people in like short shorts and a baby tee and still maintain my authority. I can't maintain my authority or my paycheck or my health care other jobs unless I do some kind of performative masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as uh, somebody who has 
And it's interesting. Like, I'm an indigenous person. We haven't talked anything about indigenosity. Mm-hmm. Not that I want to shift this topic to that, but, like, my background as an indigenous person is as a Jew. I was raised by Jews. I was educated in a Jewish educational system. I was discriminated against mm-hmm. as someone who, you know, was short, fat, a person of color, and a Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been called a kike by a skinhead in my own apartment. Um, I have had to face that individual down. Mm-hmm. It was way too drunk to do anything. I have been in relation to people who are friends where when they turn, when the point moves where they decide they don't like you, it's because you're fucking Jewish. They're, they're, right. You're a fucking yeah. Jew. I recently had the kind of soft racist conversation mm-hmm. that one is likely to have with a reasonably successful, like actually a very successful, mm-hmm. like second generation feminist, white feminist Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. about indigeneity they want to know about me and they're talking about me and the first thing they ask is what tribe are you from mm-hmm. so again being an indigenous person only has legitimacy in the world of white people if you can perform indigeneity as right. they want you to right so what that means is is that like the more stereotypically Indian I get the more I suffer on a reservation the more I wear a certain clothing the more I do a certain kind of dancing as a hobby mm-hmm. the more I can tell you like you know like indigenous people in the art world now it says their tribal affiliation behind their name everywhere well and then like the whole Jimmy Durham controversy yes. everybody oh yeah questioning and pissed off yeah I was like in the room with Sandra and the Walker curator on something at the Hammer Museum during the Jimmy Durham uh, thing in yeah. a private conversation yeah. Which I ref- so I'm like I don't have public talks about either of those people, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the times when there's native business, we just keep it native. Jimmy's interesting because if he's not native, we can air his air anywhere we want. And I have friends who like love Jimmy, mm-hmm. um, and people who hate Jimmy. I always so. what I find interesting. People argued, well, he's not registered or affiliated mm-hmm. with a particular tribe, mm-hmm. but then. His stance was, I don't want to register mm-hmm. because the, of the whole taxation of mm-hmm. Native arts. Mm-hmm. Why yes. would I participate in that? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, because only certain kinds of Native work can be recognized right. as Indigenous art. Right. So, as an Indigenous human being, as a human being who is undeniably Indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. All of my artwork is by default Indigenous art. Like, I am... Right. It's sort of just like... This is the contemporary art of an indigenous person. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Now, as an indigenous person, I didn't think I had any right to be in an indigenous space because I was absorbing whiteness. Mm-hmm. I was I was born in a... I, was, I literally did not know that I was not white until someone called me a beaner. I thought I was white mm-hmm. passing. Mm-hmm. I thought the people perceived me as white. Mm-hmm. I thought... I really thought that I was uniquely American. I was so like, I'm Jewish you... and native and white and Scottish. I'm all these fucking things. This is America, man. Yeah, like, I'm going to yeah. grow up like, like I have all this perspective. I was like, real. I, I don't know if this, this is a hubris and foolishness and you're seven. I thought, <laughs> like, I thought I was like, this is the American experience. Like, mm-hmm. I'm the melting pot. Mm-hmm. Like, I have something to contribute. It took me a long time to realize that the things that I have to contribute, that the values that I have less so as an indigenous person because I wasn't raised as an indigenous person but the values that I may have as a Jewish person or as a multicultural person are not ones that have a place in my professional field they're not ones that have a place in in most of the rooms where I'm in a meeting I am not conforming to the same ethical and decision making process as other Mm -hmm. people Um, and and it's clear I mean like I am going about how I make my decisions to conduct myself differently 
than the person next to me. And the person next to me is getting the job that I want because they're doing the things the same way as the person who's in the position of power. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. same experience that people of color have all over the world, the mm-hmm. same experience that women have, the same experience that basically anybody who's not a white man has by degree. Mm-hmm. I have tremendous amounts of white privilege because I'm white passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I have male privilege because I'm male bodied and I can move in and out of, I, and I, because of my background, like I move in and out of cultures and a really good friend of mine, Christy Roberts Berkowitz. And, and like, she's something really complicated. She's like, you're basically a professional code switcher. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's like what too. I do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I grew up in Palos Verdes. I grew up in an incredibly wealthy community. By the time I was like 16, I was like hanging out with gang members. I was not in a gang. I was around people who had people killed. I bought my street speed from guys who like had been awake for two weeks and from like homeless veteranos and stuff. You know, like I can get real street in the way I'm going to talk to you like real fast. Like I can completely shift gears and mm-hmm. how I'm going to talk. Like I grew up and like a lot of the linguistic a lot of linguistics I absorbed in high school from the people that I was around, like, like very much resembles like um, what you'd consider like a like African American vernacular English mm-hmm. or other things that would be more street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will shift tone rapidly in a certain situation um, if I feel a need to do so. Um, and people around me will pick up on this, and that's like I mean I'm just in the middle. I don't really belong anywhere. I and mean, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. But as but it took me a long time. But, so your question is, is like, as an indigenous Jew, right? Mm-hmm. If you perform indigenosity, okay, it's like, okay, what? Re- I've had white people be like, well, you haven't lived on a reservation, so you don't fuck all that to be Native American. I worked on a reservation for three years. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you what it's like to be Native. Um, oh, you know, like, oh, you don't have tribal affiliation? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so there's all these, like, it's like what the United States government hasn't told you you're an Indian, then you're not an Indian. Right. I think there's a problem right. there. And you discovered it because of researching who your birth parents no. were? My, your my parents adoptive parents were explicit. Yeah. That I was Native American, Spanish, which is Latino, yeah. French, Scottish, and English. Mm. So, uh, Peggy or Margaret Ann Morris is French, Scottish, and English. Mm-hmm. She's a white girl. Ronald Lopez is... Latin. You are just always, as a, you don't remember not being told you were adopted and I was special. You were just always told this. You're yeah. special. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird. I mean, I don't, I can't yeah. miss, I can't figure this out because it's like they put in place like legal things where they could have passed me off as their kid. I have a big ass nose. I mean, I, when I was a kid, people thought I was Jewish because I have this big nose. When I move in a space from around other native people, including other adopted native people, they immediately ask me what tribe I'm from. They get it. Like they within five it. minutes of meeting yeah. me. Huh. Within moments, we can immediately spot ourselves in the room. I have never been in a native space, mm-hmm. like whether it's a sweat lodge um, or like a powwow like space or any or in, a, in, in a, any kind of specifically native space where a native person has ever fucking questioned me. And did you ever did you feel that way when you were in Jewish spaces growing up? No, not at all. Hmm. I mean, because I did the time at Hebrew school. And I'm super, I'm Jewy. I mean, like I'm yeah. fucking Jewy. No, that's what I mean. Like you always yeah. felt welcomed, and part and people recognized you as Jewish while you were in those spaces, or they questioned it. No, my rabbi was always super cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm adopted, which means that I'm like, like, like I'm like, I'm like, my tribal status within Judaism is like, oh, you're in the leftovers tribe. Yeah. So I mean, like, I don't yeah. have, you know, like I'm never going to get called up to, uh, you know, lead a minion. <laughs> but I have like, but I can be one of the six assorted members or something. Right. If I was bar mitzvahed. Um, you know, I mean, and um, 
And I have a very strange bar mitzvah reading, which is, my bar mitzvah reading is a dry... But you said you didn't do it? But I trained to do it. Oh, you did. My bar mitzvah reading is a dry um, breakdown of animal sacrifices as to be performed by, by priests. It's 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 about my my bar mitzvah reading is about divinatory practice yeah. by Jewish wizards, basically. You know, it's it's about blood and like. So how I many never got that, like that far in Hebrew school. Yeah. I only did two years. Like I, I think at least in New York, you were supposed to start in third grade, and I did it started in fourth grade. It was just like after school mm-hmm. stuff, and so we were like a year behind. Mm-hmm. Had to have a tutor, and then I did fifth grade, and then we moved to the. I always thought it was the weirdest thing. We moved from a town where we were one of two Jewish families mm-hmm. and had to go to another town for Hebrew school mm-hmm. to a town in South Florida where it was like everywhere. I went to, I don't even know how many bar about mitzvahs growing up, but we didn't finish Hebrew school when we moved down there. Mm-hmm. We had access to it. We were involved. Like I joined the temple youth group. And was there we just enough involved. Jewish energy in the room? I guess. <laughs> I always thought it was weird because it was I always felt like something my grandparents wanted us to do and then we moved closer to them and we didn't continue it but then someone recently said they thought my mom's generation only boys got bar mitzvahed mm-hmm. so they someone else was like well maybe because your mom didn't get bar mitzvahed or bat mitzvahed that her parents didn't think it was important for you like they wanted you to have the Jewish education but no one cared mm-hmm. about you going through ceremony because girls don't do that mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, I went to Jewish preschool and then I went to Jewish school after school okay. so I went to a regular school I but I went to I went to a Jewish preschool I was in a Jewish mommy and me program and that was like uh-huh. the time I was born yeah. um, for adopted people and it was like really specific um, and I still know some of these people that I like, you know because my whole world mm-hmm. was Jews until I was in, in kindergarten mm-hmm. and then I went to kindergarten um, and and then I went to regular school and then like two Two days a week after school, possibly more at certain points, you go to Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. So you leave school, and, yeah, then, and then you're at Hebrew school for like two to four hours or something. The idea that, like, again, this is about code switching. I'm going to go exist in a white world, in an American world, and then I'm going to go live in a Jewish world part of mm-hmm. my time. Mm-hmm. And those worlds don't really cross. There isn't like a Christian kid at the Jewish school. Like, you're all Jews at the Jewish school. You were all on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. And it was right when the Gulf War happened. So one of the most profound oh. memories of my Jewish life was being actively told by my Kadima leader, uh-huh. you know, uh, which is a Jewish youth group um, that takes you out to do broom ball and other things, like scout-like things, and yeah. like pizza yeah. parties. You know, um, they're the people who are going to indoctrinate you to doing your right of return. Mm. At like four in the afternoon when it started, I watched... Um, Scud missiles land in Israel. I watched that night vision CNN cam yeah, of the bombing yeah. of Baghdad with Wolf Blitzer on the roof of the Baghdad Hotel. I watched that as a 12-year-old Jew while my Kadima guy is like, this is why it's important that you join the IDF. You go to Israel mm-hmm. at 17, you quit high school for a year, you're going to join the IDF. You need to learn Hebrew now and you're going to go to Israel and you're going to fight for Israel because, because like we are going to be at war. Like when you, like, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's weird. I mean, I don't think... I mean. I know other Americans who think about being at war in an active way. Uh, I went to high school in Palos which is adjacent to San Pedro, and I have friends who are Croatian, mm. Dalmatian, and Serbian. And I knew people who, you know, by the time I was in high school, we were at war. Um, they were at war with each other. Right, right. Um, And I knew Croatians who went over there um, and came back 
Um, I knew Croatia. I knew people who were high school age who were sent over there at 16. Um, and I mean, there were families that I knew they would send over um, Mercedes Benzes to America full of like all your favorite Croatian foods. Mm-hmm. And then you would send something like a Toyota back because you could, you were just paying the tariffs on the Toyota and it would be full of AK 47s. Wow. Or like ammo or like antibiotics or like battlefield mm-hmm. supplies. Mm-hmm. And so there was like jam, like, the, your, like your best Croatian jam was coming in with it. And so every, every high schooler in Pedro in the 90s who's Croatian or, or had a Mercedes because it had been sent over full mm-hmm. of stuff. Because the Mercedes wasn't, I mean, the Mercedes was cheap. They all had these shitty, like, mm-hmm. 1980s Mercedes. Um, and then, but they did send over some of the young guys and, like, they would drop them off and it didn't matter what side they were. I know the Serbians have, like, you know, a repu- like, they have this, repu- but they were Croatian, the same shit happened. They would drop you off and you're 16 years old and they would hand you an AK-47 and you'd be like, and, like, within, you know, within your first combat, they were like, you have to go rape that person. And like, you, so you were, yeah. your Hebrew school teacher was telling you this is what yeah. you're going to train for. I mean, I, I do f- have these memories of Hebrew school where we I don't remember being talked about it like that, but it was, there was this almost indoctrination of, you know, Israel can do no wrong. You Mm -hmm. have to, you want to go there. All the prayers are like, all the holidays, celebrations are like next year in Israel, right? And it is a strange um, thing to have, be, be almost like taught about, having a connection to this place that didn't mm-hmm. always exist that your family's not a like I, my family's Ashkenazi they're not from the Middle East yeah. so for us to be yeah. told like but you have to now have this connection to this place mm-hmm. not to that place yeah. is sort of a strange thing well I don't know how I felt about Israel as a child but I mean I'm one of these people that abhors its existence and feels that it feels that the creation of the state of Israel is, the state of Israel is, a, is the is a is it one of the it's like it marks the end of of a certain kind of Judaism Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a diasporic person like that's how I feel as a person so of course I I want as a Jew I want my Jewish identity to be diasporic yeah like that's my comfort zone do you think there's a difference between being an American and being an American Jew fuck yeah can you articulate that um I'm going to just leave it at that. No, okay. um, no. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, so I describe my adoptive parents as white identifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that Jews are white people. Mm-hmm. I believe that, I mean, whiteness is a really, I mean, please, can we have more whiteness studies programs in school? Whiteness is a yeah. really complicated uh, dynamic. I have worked with European artists. I have seen how white European art, I'm making air quotes, right. European artists discriminate against a, a white Jewish artist. They, they, right. If you're in Europe, Jews are not the same race. Mm-hmm. In America, we are allowed to be of the same racial stock as white people so long as we conform. This is easier for people who weren't perceived as white, like the Irish or or, or Italians or other certain kinds of Southern European people, mm-hmm. for example, because they essentially exist in a Protestant Catholic universe. Mm-hmm. So, But as Jews, we don't, and we never will. And a lot yeah. of the things like proselytization, a lot of the things that are at the core of American Protestant ethics are actually things that are abhorrent to us. Right. So, Like we make it really hard to convert, not yeah. try to convert people. Yeah. It's like, do you really want to do this? Yeah. I'll tell you a story and I'll tell you a very American political story. So I used to live in Hyde Park, yeah. uh, which is... Um, 
um, near Crenshaw and Slauson. It's a historically black neighborhood. It's about 80 to 85% black still. Mm. And it's an experience. I mean, it's really an experience as a non-black person living in a black community. You are going to be treated as if you are white unless you are distinctly not white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that means that you are sometimes going to realize that you are in line with the market. That you are the only person within 100 feet of you, and there's several hundred people around you, who is not black. And the person asking the register is really nice to everybody besides you. Mm. And you don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't have any... I don't have that insight, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're always kind of trying to figure out, like, well, how do I fit into this community? My address, not me as a person, was chosen mm-hmm. to be, to be like, surveyed as a household. And... Um, there is a census worker who would come around and he, um, he's a black school teacher. He's a full-time LAUSD school teacher. And he has this second job as a census worker on the mm-hmm. weekends. He makes some extra money. And so that's the reason I'm contextualizing the racial background of this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, um, you know, as a queer person, as a Jew, as an indigenous person living in this neighborhood, um, I know what space I occupy in relation to the notion of America. And I know what space that my neighbors do. Mm-hmm. Right, like this is this is happening during the election. Mm-hmm. If you're an alien and you're listening to this five thousand years from now, this is like during the final election of the American government. <laughs> um, <except laughs> this is the last, the beginning of the fall, the last <laughs> election that American ever had. So, like, it was during the election, and this man who's running for president is basically saying that black people only live in the inner city. He has this notion, mm-hmm. and I live in a suburban black neighborhood. Like all my neighbors own their homes. Mm-hmm. They're retired union workers and stuff. They are all better off economically than me. They have nicer cars than me. Mm. I, I, I absolutely know what bullshit this notion is. No. like there, There's millions of people who, who do not live like that and are not this racist stereotype that is being presented. They, they, no. That, that, no. I just can't accept it. No, no, no. My neighbors are these diverse, interesting people who want the same things that I want. Mm-hmm. And this guy who's local to the community comes around a lot and he wants me to sit down for the census thing. And I keep blowing him off. Mm-hmm. I'm blowing him off. And I'm blowing him off. Uh, I don't want to deal with it. I'm like a too busy one day. I tell him to come by on a Sunday. We miss each other. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so now we've moved forward. And it's the first day of the, of the Trump presidency. Yeah. So, so um, the Republicans have seized power under this leader. And, um, and we no longer have a, a democratically elected president. And we have an authoritarian government essentially that's where we are as a mm-hmm. country this man works for that government mm-hmm. he is an employee of that government he has not chosen as I would do to turn in my badge and like fight in the streets or whatever it is I have not yet done <laughs> uh, but I don't work for the government and I wouldn't right. uh, he shows up and he's like and he's like you have to do this and he says to me if you don't do the census right now like the deadline for you for this house is like Monday and it's like Sunday or it's the weekend. He's like, if you don't do this today, you are breaking federal law. I don't have a legal right to not participate in census. So he's telling me mm-hmm. that I will be sent to jail for up to five years or like one to five years and fined up to 5000 Now, obviously, like they might fine me or something, right? Yeah, but I'm not right. going to go to prison. Right. But I mean, he's uh, so I would gov- it's the first day of the Trump presidency. Uh-huh. And I have just come home from the Women's March and then a secondary march, which I attended. At, like, at a jail solidarity march outside the jail where I got to watch lots and lots of white people walk right by lots and lots of people of color uh-huh. like who were protesting prison conditions in America and they go right back to their cars and I go home from this on the first day of this administration and an 
agent of the government says, if you don't do what this government tells you to do right fucking now, you're going to fuck, go to fucking jail. You're going to sit down with me right now and you have to tell me all about yourself mm-hmm. or you go to fucking jail. And I will tell you, I will make this happen. We get in this conversation and I go, okay, let's do it. And I'm sitting there on the porch. I'm like, you're not coming to my fucking house. I'm like, I'm like, I'm pissed at this guy. I don't want to deal with this. I'm yeah. like, not in the mood for this. He's already basically told me that it's like, I'm committing a crime. Uh-huh. And he starts surveying me about the house. And I realized early in the survey that he's asking certain kinds of questions in a certain limited way. And he didn't ask certain questions. Hmm. So he asks me about my name and like, how old I am, and he then he asked me, oh, does anyone else live here? And I'm like, yeah, I live here with my partner, and they're in the shower. And he's like, well, what's your partner's gender? Mm-hmm. And I said, let me go ask them. Mm-hmm. And I'm serious. I go into the house, and I go, Katie, what, how, do you, you know, how do you want your gender listed on the U.S. Census? Right. Like, I'm not here to speak for Katie. Uh, and she's female, it's fine. So go out, and I said, my partner's female. And then I say, why didn't you ask me my gender? Uh-huh. And he says, because you're a man. And I said, why didn't you ask me? And he's like, well, you're obviously not a woman. During the Obama administration in the last year, I was part of a community of people that the census, the census was doing test censuses for what would be the current census. Mm-hmm. How to categorize gender queer, mm-hmm. gender nonconforming, and trans individuals. Someone put out that they were doing this survey and they wanted as many people as they could get. And I said, I'm going to do the survey. Mm-hmm. The survey, um, as somebody who's gender nonconforming um, or non-transition trans, um, they asked a lot of questions that were like, so as a trans person, like it was basically f- funneling you into, yeah. okay, everybody's trans. You're, you're a man or a woman or you're trans. Mm. And there's no middle category. Mm. Now, that was the version I got. So maybe it was badly written. I'm not trying to... But they were trying to figure out what to do. What's the right way the to The federal government is yeah. trying to figure out. Most of the questions were like, so when did you start using drugs and living on the street and turning tricks to support your transition? I mean, it kind of led you towards that. It's like, wow. you know, like, when did, like, do you have AIDS or not? Like, there was, like, very, very serious questions that were, like, presuming that this is a certain kind of trans experience. Uh-huh. And this is a big part of why I didn't transition. Because when I was in the 90s, like, I was going to die of AIDS on the street of L.A., homeless, mm. without a family. You know, like, that is not the case for people now. So... I was very displeased by the results of that survey, but I was mm-hmm. glad it existed. Right. And then I'm working with an actual census taker, I and he and he there are no there's no there are only two buttons. He mm-hmm. I saw his form fields. Mm-hmm. He's this cracked, shitty laptop. I mean, I'm like you're. I'm like he's really under equipped to do this job. He's not very well trained. Then he asked me a lot of questions like, "Does your house have heat?" Like these are these sort of like they feel like. Like 1970s, like you know, like mm-hmm. you know, like you know, like like you're living in Philly. Do you have heating oil? Like, do you have any pets? Like, how do you pay? You rent or own? Like a lot of this stuff. And then he gets to what's your racial background? Mm-hmm. And I say, I and he wants like the whole ethnic background, the whole. He's like, what's your ethnic background? And I said, I am a French, Scottish, English, Russian, Ukrainian, Native American Jew. Mm-hmm. And he's run out of room. He's like, well, I can't fit all that yeah. on the thing. And I said, uh, well, I'm adopted, so I have two separate ethnic and racial backgrounds. And I, he can't fit this in. And I said, well, like, I guess I'm Native American, 
like a Latino and Jewish and white. Mm-hmm. And he and he says Jews aren't race. Mm-hmm. And I said you're going to put that in the fucking field because he is typing. He can type in right. something. You could yeah. like you know, he says it could be from like a country. There's not a button yeah. for us. Yeah. And he he was like no. He's like that's a religion. Mm. And I just said to him like I don't get to choose not to be Jewish when people decide to kill Jews the next time. Right. So I mean I don't I can't question him and his experience, but he's absolutely entitled to tell me that I'm not but that Jews aren't a race yeah that that's I not always, an ethnic background when I I remember the only times I feel like whenever I filled out FAFSA forms and college and grad school applications when they wanted to know your race or ethnicity I always listed Jewish too yeah and I think I felt like it was it was sort of twofold it was like there's a need to assert an otherness for some reason, out of maybe like cultural self-preservation, mm-hmm. and then there's a, I feel also like this need to, because I pass as Gentile, to assert, assert that I'm not, mm-hmm. to remind people that I'm not, even though I am technically half. But then there's, but then it, there was also the other like more practical was, but there might be a Jewish scholarship that I could get because I don't have money to go to college, well, right? So it was sort of the, I always, I took it as that. Like, I've got to put it on for all those reasons. You know, part of why I like having travel membership or travel enrollment is not important to me as an indigenous person is because, A, I have lived so much of my life outside of that community. Right. And I'm lucky that I am welcomed in that community as the kind of person that I am, as are many, many other people. Right. I mean, um, that census moment, on the first day, it was a January nineteenth, two thousand sixteen, or whatever. Seventeen. 17. Um, that that's like, I mean, I actually don't believe that there's. You know, if we're going to talk about America, I don't believe that we've had a functional American government since the failure to seat Merrick Garland. I think that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, regardless of your political thing, the, the 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 disruption of the process on the Supreme on a Supreme Court appointment yeah. represent, which now affects other things afterwards. We do not, as far as I am concerned. We do not have a government. I do not. I do not believe the federal government exists with any authority other than its ability to project force, and our ability to believe in it. Mm. Uh, and um, and then forward to the election, which which at this point clearly um, was not a democratic election or a free and fair election by any means that we as Americans would believe one is in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, the standards that we would apply when we before we go bomb the shit out of somebody so they can go yeah. be democratic like we are. If we applied the standards we've applied to other people to ourselves at this moment, we would not believe that there's a real president. There is no president. There's no Supreme Court. There's only power, and this is exactly this is the exact point mm-hmm. that there is only power at this point. What are you hopeful about? Um, like this is an amazing time to be an indigenous person. Um. There's so much pain that's in the surface right now. Like, so much really bad shit is happening. Like, indigenous males, you know, are the most likely people to be shot by a police, killed by a police officer mm. in America. Um, there's something like 6,000 indigenous women in the United States who are, who, like, who's, who are missing. The number in Canada is yeah. even more. Yeah. This is not news to me. The fact that people are talking about this kind of stuff means that the notion of indigenous sovereignty could be real. Sovereignty is important to me, as opposed to I'm I just I I loathe hearing my white allies or 
even other indigenous people talk about how important it is to preserve sacred land. I am not concerned with sacred land. I am Jewish. Mm-hmm. If I live on a reservation, my house is going to be indigenous, but it's also a Jewish household. Mm-hmm. It's not. It doesn't matter if it's Native American people can't own the land under their own house if it's on a reservation. They are not allowed to own land mm-hmm. on their own reservations. The United States government owns that land in trust for them, and they are allowed to build on it. Um, that's like not being a citizen. Like in New Zealand, as of, you right. know, it's like, I mean, there's just laws in other countries like that. So what's important to me is sovereignty. Sovereignty is threatening to like white capitalist heteropatriarchy or something. And I like sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Sacredness empowers my oppressors. Mm-hmm. The notion that like I should be wearing a fucking buckskin and a dream catcher and like have the haircuts from like four distinct regional things at once and this is also Altsland and that a white ally is going to be the first person to remind the entire room that we are on Tongva land. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, like that does not matter to me. What matters to me is serenity. What matters to me is like, okay, so can I open a casino in downtown LA? Can I tell the cops to get the fuck out when they show up? Mm. At what point do I have to use force to tell them to get off of my casino? You know, that's serenity. Mm. Sacredness is like, it's someone else's idea of how you are supposed to be as an indigenous person at point of first contact. That you must always remain like that. Like an animal. Like like not a human being. Mm -hmm. Like, seeing women's facial tattooing come back in native communities gives me a lot of hope that native people can be human beings on their own terms again mm-hmm. as opposed to human beings on someone else's terms. Okay, so let's go back to Barry Sanders. So he talked about being in Hebrew school and at, at Rosh Hashanah his um, his rabbi, you know, wrote the words of a prayer in honey mm-hmm. on paper mm-hmm. and then made them lick the honey mm-hmm. so they could taste the sweetness of the words. Mm-hmm. I can't detangle the the gorgeous depths of esoteric like Judaism mm. from the intense uh, ritual experiences that I have had or may have um, in relation to my indigenous community. Mm. I feel like a human being when I think of language and words as something that one can eat. I feel like a Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, you feel free of your body in a weird way. Like, you're, I don't know how to explain that, but like maybe that's, you know, like you feel comfortable in your body. Mm-hmm. Like the transitoriness of the world becomes apparent in a certain kind of religious experience. <laughs> this has been the longest conversation, but it doesn't surprise me. Oh, yeah. No, this is like... Like like twice as long as most of yeah, them. Yeah, probably, two, yeah. Maybe two and a half times long as most. No one so is listening So we should probably wrap point. it up. We might... It'll get edited significantly. <laughs> so we're going to wrap this up. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing all of this with me. <laughs> it's been a really fascinating conversation, um, as I expected. Thank you. Thanks.